Join us as we explore the exciting past of the grand state of Texas from the archives of the Texas Collection. Host Robert Darden talks with Texas history writers. You'll hear dramatic and often little-known Texas tales. This is Treasures of the Texas Collection. Hi, I'm your host, Robert Darden, Associate Professor of Journalism at Baylor University, and welcome to Treasures of the Texas Collection. One of the hidden treasures at the Texas Collection at Baylor University is its one-of-a-kind map collection. All kinds of maps, some hundreds and hundreds of years old. In 2010 through 2011, the Texas Collection began showcasing 21 maps that guide the viewer through 231 years of discovery and chartering showing how our country's boundaries and geography came to be documented. Freelance writer Corley Sims paid a visit to the Texas Collection specifically to see these maps and to hear the fascinating stories behind this invaluable resource. Welcome, Corley. Tell us about this collection. Thank you, Robert. Um, the, the exhibition highlights the cartography of Texas in the western half of the United States. It um, follows the exploration, the miscalculations, and then the eventual rapid colonization of these areas. On the back of a Houston and Texas Central Railway map, which is one of the concluding pieces of this showcase, there's an advertisement enticing colonizers to settle in Texas, a territory that had been juggled between major powers, gained its independence, and then finally come to rest as a member of the U.S. The advertisement boasts of a rich and inexhaustible soil, saying that not even fertile France surpasses the Empire State in the character of her production. Every product known to the use of mankind can be grown in the salubrious and healthful climate of the state of Texas. Now those of us who have actually attempted farming in the state of Texas can agree that the article perhaps exaggerates the lusciousness of the grounds and the promise of flourishing produce. <laughs> you think? <laughs> Still, that map, it, its accompanying ad, apparently had its desired effect, Right. Right. This advertisement actually marked a dramatic change in the world's view of a state whose interior had puzzled geographers for years. The state was now not only charted, but major railway systems ran through evolving Texas cities. The map advertisement claimed that the Empire State only needed an industrious population to reach its promising potential. Well, however, this map is only the end of a long journey through American cartography, right? Correct, yes. Um, the collection actually begins at a time when Texas and the Southwest still really puzzled cartographers. The western United States was a mysterious and often misstated territory. For a long period, map makers convinced the world that California was an island, mm. and sometimes a, an honest, unexplored territory title would appear over a white space in the western hemisphere. With no satellites or advanced technology, Explorers were forced to live up to their name and chart the territory as they found it with their own eyes. Sometimes they would consult the top authorities, or sometimes they were constrained by rumors and the work of their predecessors, forced to plot their own versions of the United States. Between the inaccuracies brought on by the explorers and their predecessors' personal miscalculations, those miscalculations traveling by word of mouth, and the frequent change of territory lines as the major powers scuffled, it was quite a while before the maps began to accurately reflect the present layout of the U.S. As I've been reading about this, I believe the first map featured in the Texas collection is particularly rare in the whole U.S. It is, yes. That would be the Nouveau-Mexique et la Floride, a map that was created by Nicholas Sanson de Abbeville, who was named royal geographer to King Louis VIII. 
During the 17th century, the Dutch handed over its monopoly of European cartography to the French, and Sanson rose as France's major geographic pioneer. And one of the most notable features in this French map is the beautiful and elaborate cartouche that encases the map's title, the cartographer's name, and the date. It's kind of like a coat of arms, a very elegant border with intricate designs used to showcase the map's information. The word cartouche actually originated in ancient Egypt and indicated that a royal name was enclosed in its borders. Later, the cartouche spread to the world of map making and became a garnishing staple of Italian, Spanish, and French maps. The cartouche on this particular map shows large ribbons holding up a draping, tasseled curtain with words written inside. I suppose at that early date, there was the odd inaccuracy here or there, and maybe even a here be dragons kind of thing. <laughs> Very true. There are actually several geographic misrepresentations on this early map. The most obvious is going to be the California Isle. The name itself announces the flaw. California is represented as an island completely severed from the rest of the country by a stretch of water and a few islands. Prior Dutch maps, such as Jan Janssen's America Septentrionalis, also represented California as an island, leading us to believe that Sanson had come to this conclusion on the basis of those who came before him. However, Sanson expanded on Janssen's idea by adding geographic elaboration to the north and interior coastal lines of this island. Another geographical flaw on this map is actually the placement of the Appalachian Mountains. Whoa. You know, mountains are a little harder to misplace, aren't they? <laughs> yes. But the mountains in this map begin on the lower east coast and arc over what is now the deep south before plunging into <laughs> present-day Texas. <laughs> The lack of geographic detailing in Texas in the Northwest, including these misplaced Appalachians, indicate how little was known about these areas at mm -hmm. this time. The interior of Texas and California, along with the entire Northwest part of the country, are almost completely white or void, except for a few rivers snaking from the coast. The Spanish hadn't colonized the state of Texas, so Sanson had very little to work off of. Though major geographic features such as the Mississippi River are absent from the southwest, Sanson is renowned for his identification of Indian tribes such as the Navajo and the Apache. These names are marked in the central and northwestern parts of the map. You know, Sanson is very important in other ways, right? Which makes this map all the more valuable. Right, yes. Um, the school of cartography that Nicholas Sanson established in Paris allowed France to make tremendous strides in geographic study and dominate map making for decades. The creator of the following map in the collection was Guillaume Leocille, whose father had been a pupil at Sanson's institution. As opposed to the preceding Dutch cartographer's mindset, the French did not feel obligated to fill undiscovered territory with decoration or guesswork. They were completely unashamed to leave a void in uncharted territories, relying only on personal exploration and the most accurate authorities of the time. This dedication to accuracy was shared by most of the French mapmakers, and therefore a trend of open white space became a common means of indicating unknown territories. However, by the time Guillaume Leocille published his map, Cartouche de Mexique et de la Floride, in 1703, there was less white space on his map of the United States and Central America. The Appalachian Mountains were placed almost in their rightful place, lining the East Coast. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> and the Rio Grande appears and begins to define the shape of Texas as we know it today. Though the Mississippi River for the first time is accurately portrayed, many other rivers snaking in from the coast were inaccurately plotted. 
The only portion of this map that com remains completely void of markings is the northwest, where the cartouche rests on a completely blank top left corner of the map. Well, I'd hate to think we didn't get Seattle after all of that. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Do you have any other treasures in this collection to tell us about? Yes. Um, the most striking visual map on the wall is going to be Alexander von Homelt's Carte Générale de Royaume de la Nouvelle Espagne. Well said. <laughs> Thank you. This map was regarded as one of the most scientifically advanced works of cartography seen yet, partially due to Humboldt's attention to topographical features. His manner of depicting geographical features, especially mountain ranges and other elevations, was certainly the most advanced we've seen yet in this collection. Humboldt employed a technique called hachure, in which the illustrator uses short line segments to represent different elevations and slopes. Where the, seg where the line segments are more concentrated, that would indicate that the slopes were steeper, and then the gentler slopes would be depicted by thinner lines. Humboldt's depiction of mountains, therefore, was of ranges rather than the filed, triangular, singular mountains that were employed by L'Isle and Sanson. The popular practice of copper engraving in this period allowed very detailed hachures to be easily transferred to replica maps. So... Not only did Humboldt do his homework, we're starting to get maps that are looking more and more like modern maps then. Very much, yes. And Humboldt definitely did his homework. Um, he completed a five-year expedition to the New World, where he researched the territory that he would map in 1809. After visiting libraries and archives in New Spain and consulting with the Mexican authorities, Humboldt created what was considered one of the most extensive and accurate topographical maps created yet. However, there were still major errors in his depiction of the Texas area. The rivers that deposited into the Gulf of Mexico were inaccurately shown as plummeting almost directly south instead of winding down in a southeasterly direction as they actually do. The Brazos River was also significantly understated in scale, and the Guadalupe Mountains were placed east of the Pecos. His misplacement of the Guadalupe Range was accepted and copied by travelers and mapmakers long after this map was printed. Boy, weren't they surprised. <laughs> you know, your next cartographer has one of my favorite names in all of American history, Zebulon Montgomery Pike. It sounds <laughs> almost like John Jacob Jingleheimer Smith. <laughs> yes, it does. Zebulon <laughs> Montgomery Pike. Tell Definitely me about it. Definitely trips off the tongue. Um, unlike the cartographers who have come so far, Zebulon Montgomery Pike had not been extensively trained in cartography, nor was he particularly a man of science when he embarked on his expedition. He was actually a 27-year-old lieutenant who was ordered to explore the Arkansas and Red Rivers with specific instructions to find the sources of the rivers. In 1810, Pike's recount of his discoveries, one of the first detailed accounts written in English, was published along with his map, called A Map of the Internal Provinces of New Spain. Shortly after the piece was published in Philadelphia, Humboldt, our previous cartographer, accused Zebulon of plagiarizing his own map without giving credit. And Zebulon did likely have access to this predecessor's map in America, and many portions of his map do mimic Humboldt's geographical representations, but Pike's depiction of Texas was overall superior. Um, Zebulon's personal expedition and his consultation with New Spain's authorities rendered new and more accurate findings in Texas. The rivers that Humboldt had shown as flowing directly south had been corrected to their true placement, and the Brazos River, which Humboldt has portrayed as merely a minor stream, and other major rivers were not plotted perfectly, but certainly more accurately than their previous attempts. So I guess this is kind of a defining moment. Did maps start at this point to get better 
in the years that follow. Yes, they do. Um, as we move into later maps, the East Coast becomes heavily occupied and accurate state borders and coastal features start to appear. And the West, which had been such a looming, sparsely charted area, now transforms into a territory of possibilities for new settlers. Traveling roads begin to appear, and the titles of the collection's map change from New Spain to the United States. The western portion of the United States had become a cartographical priority, as the future was sure to hold promising opportunities. In response, the controlling powers began to scramble for authority in these parts. And at the same time, America starts demanding better and more accurate maps. Exactly, yes. Because it was around this time that America rose to the, to the cartography standards of their European competitors. Philadelphia became a major location for the drawing and printing of maps. This movement was very largely influenced by John Mellish, who seized the opportunity to provide greater knowledge of the Western Front and created one of the most popular maps of the U.S. This map would be highly influential and very controversial in later land treaties. One such negotiation was the Adams-Onis Treaty of 1819, in which Spain relinquished control of Florida to the U.S. and an official border was established between the two powers. In exchange for Florida, the U.S. allowed control of Texas to pass over to Spain. However, the boundaries were unclear. The diplomatic leaders of the time relied heavily on John Mellish's map of the United States to divide the territory. The negotiating powers decided that the western Louisiana border would run from the mouth of the Sabine River and carry along its western bank. The border was accurately placed on Mellish's map and still serves as the border between Louisiana and Texas today. However, the northern border, which was supposed to run west along the Arkansas River, was largely disputed long after the treaty due to a miscalculation in Mellish's plotting. Mellish had indicated that the Arkansas River was 240 miles north of its actual location. <laughs> he also failed to correctly place the 90th Meridian, which defines the Texas Panhandle, an era that would only be concluded after an 1896 Supreme Court decision. Oh, drat. I hate it when I miss my mark by 240 miles. But you know, the deal is, guys just hate to ask for directions. <laughs> so true. <laughs> In 1841, cartographer John Arrowsmith released the most up-to-date map of the newly independent Texas published in his London Atlas. This map was one of the first to showcase an accurate Republic of Texas. The map showed traveling routes to the new city of Houston and enticed settlers with labels reading, Valuable Land and Delightful Country. <laughs> These handwritten descriptions scrawled between the geography were indicators of the evolving interest in this new state and the resulting demand for traveling information. The map not only includes travel advice and detailed labeling of rivers and landmarks, but also the names of Indian tribes and their dwellings and titles, such as droves of wild horses and cattle. Hmm. Texas remains in its republic shape until 1850, with its western border following the Rio Grande North, extending its boundaries into present-day New Mexico. The maps following Texas' adoption of this new shape show counties and communities flourishing, especially in the eastern portion of the state. Attention in Texas maps begins to focus on railway systems and mail routes, and traveling companies are urging settlers to find a home in this state and utilize their transportation. Texas and Houston railway companies begin teaming up with the major traveling agencies and offering reduced trips to and from Texas. Yeah, we've heard that before. And so this is where advertising sets in, right? Yes. One advertisement at the end of this collection announces, For the purpose of settling up the state of Texas, 
The Houston and Texas Railway Company has, in connection with the above-named steamship companies, placed in effect greatly reduced rates from all prominent places in Great Britain, Ireland, and continental Europe to all points in Texas to which the railway is tributary. And so when these settlers arrive for the first time, there will be accurate maps to get them where they're going in this great big state. Corley, thanks for sharing another treasure of the Texas Collection. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Robert. I really enjoyed it. My pleasure. While we're speaking of maps, here's a story about someone who put Waco on the map. His name was Samuel Blythe Price, better known to everyone as Sammy. And boy, could he play the piano. Here's just a snippet of Sammy Price playing Harlem Parlor Blues. Oh man, I love that stuff. For more than 50 years, Price was one of the top pianists, composers, arrangers in the U.S., if not the world. He was the master of a host of genres, boogie-woogie, swing, jump blues, gospel blues, early rhythm and blues, and that particularly Manhattan subgenre, piano blues. Price was loved and acclaimed in the African-American music community in the first half of the 20th century, recording on his own, mostly with the boppin' Sammy Price trio, and many, many more sides as an arranger-writer with top African-American blues and jazz artists of the day, including Sidney Bechet. One legendary session in the early 1940s even featured famed saxman Lester Young. But if Sammy Price had never played a note of jazz or jump blues, he'd still be important. His autobiography of -of turn-of-the-century African-American life in a mid-sized Texas town is an invaluable resource to historians everywhere. And what do they want, a jazz autobiography? Sammy writes that he was born on October 6, 1908, in Honeygrove, Texas. But at a very young age, the family moved to Waco, where his father found work at the Brazos Bakery, had a whopping $6 a week. Living on the old Corsicana Road in East Waco, Samley tells of an idyllic childhood, roaming the city, always returning to their small house, now overrun with grandparents and aunts and uncles. At one point, he writes, To mention Waco was like talking about heaven. As far as I was concerned, going to Waco, I was going to the biggest city on earth. I mean, I thought if it rained in Waco... It rained in the next county, the next state. It rained in New York, Chicago, and Washington. Those places I'd heard of that I'd figured were just about the same, though not as important, as Waco. In 1913, Sammy started East Waco Elementary, about a mile down Corsicana Road from his family's house on Paul Quinn Street. After class, he'd sign shoes from the older men and listen to them talk about the war in Europe. At age seven, he and his brother once even got in a fight with some Baylor boys on Waco's excellent streetcar system. His first musical lessons were from a Professor Cobb who tried to teach Sammy the cornet for 25 cents a lesson. After two weeks, Cobb told his mother, quote, Mrs. Price, your son ain't got it. He just doesn't have it. He doesn't understand what it's about. He can never learn. He has no concept of tonal qualities, and that's that. Save your 25 cents. Well, famous last words. But Sammy kept attending the vaudeville shows at the Gaiety Theater just across the Brazos River on Bridge Street, where he'd sit all day watching act after act. 
but especially the piano players. Each year, the massive Waco Cotton Palace would open its grounds on certain days to African Americans. His father had one of the food stands on the fairgrounds, and little Sammy would wander in and out of the fair, the rodeo, and, of course, the musical stages. It was there that he met the famed comedy and dance team of Ella B. Moore and Chintz, her husband. They kindly invited a little kid who seemed to love music so much to visit them in Dallas, should he ever get that way. Quote, From that night on until the summer of 1918, we just daydreamed about music, always listening to the blues melodies we heard around us day and night. These songs used to come to us from some of the strangest places, and from the start I loved every one of them. Like religion, the blues was also part of our people. Sometimes the blues singers sang of sad and terrible things, too. He once heard a blues man sing about a lynching that had taken place in nearby Robinson, then called Robinsonville. The lyrics still haunted him 60 years later. Quote, I never have and I never will pick no more cotton in Robinsonville. Tell me how long will I have to wait? Can I get you now or must I hesitate? But it was on the street corners of Waco that Sammy heard the legendary blues singer Blind Lemon Jefferson on the city's downtown square. Price writes that he distinctly remembers people in the crowd urging Jefferson, quote, come on, Lemon, pick that box. Meanwhile, he'd begun taking informal piano lessons on the grand piano at his aunt's house. It was clear from the beginning that he did indeed have talent, whatever Professor Cobb might think. By the advent of World War I, the Price family had split up, and times are even harder than usual. Finally, his mother moved to Dallas to look for work, and on June 3, 1918, sent for the boys. They took the interurban to Dallas. Soon he got a job operating the PLA or piano on Miss Lizzie's parlor, memorizing the music as it played. Eventually, he began formal piano lessons with Miss Portia Pittman of Dallas, who just happened to be the daughter of Booker T. Washington. And thus began the career of swinging Sammy Price. After Dallas, Sammy traveled with Alfonso Trent's band, spent some time in Kansas City studying under the great barrel house and boogie pianist there, then moving on to Chicago and in Detroit. In 1938, Price became the house pianist for the great Decca label in New York, playing behind some of the greatest African-American singers of his generation, Petey Wheatstraw, the devil's son-in-law, Big Joe Turner, Blue Lou Baker, and more. And it's in New York that Price begins a long association with Sister Rosetta Tharp, the one-of-a-kind jazz gospel singer and guitar player. With Price, Tharp cut or recuts many of her greatest hits, including Up Above My Head I Hear Music in the Air, Rock Me, Didn't It Rain, Shout Sister Shout, and this gem, Strange Things Happening Every Day. All we hear church people say, they are in this holy way. Judgment day when they drive them all away. There are strange things happening every day. Every day. Every day. Every day. Every day. There are strange things happening every day. Price worked steadily in the late 1940s and early 1950s, mostly because he could play just about everything recording or performing with Buddy Rich, Benny Goodman, Red Allen, Doc Cheatham, and others. Sammy even played piano on a number of early rock and roll songs. 
In later years, he returned briefly to Texas to open a couple nightclubs and a meat products company. Price was deeply involved in politics, too, actively working on the campaigns of Adam Clayton Powell, LBJ, even Bobby Kennedy, performing at benefits and organizing neighborhoods. But he eventually returned to his beloved Manhattan, much like Bobby Short, and became a fixture there. Sammy Price died April 14, 1992, in New York City, just weeks after playing a steady gig in Boston. But before we go, here's just one more taste of the great piano stylings of Sammy Price, again with Sister Rosetta Thurman. I'm your host, Robert Darden, Associate Professor of Journalism, PR, and New Media. And thank you for joining us for another edition of Treasures of the Texas Collection. The Texas Collection has an extraordinary set of Texas-related documents, books, letters, photographs, memoirs, and, of course, maps and music and much, much more. For more information, go to baylor.edu slash lib, L-I-B, slash Texas. Treasures of the Texas Collection was made possible by generous grants from the Wardlaw Fellowship Fund for Texas Studies and by the Guy B. Harrison Jr. Endowment Fund. This has been a production of KWBU-FM 103.3, public radio for Central Texas.